Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizade, and it is my distinct honor today to have Jahan Ramazani on the podcast, um, someone that I've I've been hoping I could get to come on for um, quite a while now, and uh, we're able to make it work. And I think um, I think this is going to be a wonderful experience uh, for all of us. Um, so, um, the, the poem that Jahan has, um, chosen to talk about today is by the poet Derek Walcott, um, a poem of his called a far cry from Africa. And as ever, um, there will be a link to the text of the poem in the episode notes. So for people who'd like to look at it, as we talk about it, you can find it there. Um, We'll, we'll hear lots more about Walcott uh, for those who aren't yet familiar with him in, in just a moment. But first, let me tell you more about our guest. Uh, Jahan Ramazani is the university professor and Edgar F. Shannon professor and director of modern and global studies in the Department of English at the University of Virginia. He's the author of six books. Um, his, his first book was on Yeats and elegy and and then he wrote a second book that was about elegy more more broadly speaking at, at which point at least in my reading of it Jahan's career took a bit of a turn um a kind of ever widening the, the widening guy or something right um a, a a kind of widening um aperture um he and he's in his four most recent books um are, I, I think can be understood as a kind of sequence that suggests the nature of, um, well, of the trajectory of, of, of his career. So in 2001, he, he published a book called The Hybrid Muse, Postcolonial Poetry in English. Um, then in 2009, a, a book um, called The Transnational Poetics, which was followed in 2014 by Poetry and Its Others, News, Prayer, Song, and the Dialogue of Genres. That's 2014, I think um, I said. And then most recently in 2020, a book called Poetry in a Global Age. Um, I, I want to say more about that trajectory in just a moment and, and the significance of these books in, um, in the field that that he and I both work in, but but first, let me also point out that Jahan is is, is not only an author, but has done a, a staggering amount of really important editorial work. Um, so he's been an editor of the Norton Anthology of English Literature. Um, he's he's worked as an editor on the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics. For for people who don't know, these are the the kind of go to. Um, standard editions of um, literary anthology that are, um, you know, in the, in the case of the Norton that are assigned in classrooms um, throughout the world. And the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics is like a must-have handbook for terms and concepts and ideas from, from the history of poetry. Um, Jahan is also the editor of the Cambridge Companion to Postcolonial Poetry, to um, the editor of Special Issues of the journal New Literary History, um, and um, and the editor of the updated versions of the Norton Anthologies of Modern and Contemporary Poetry, um, a volume of which I held up for him to see on my screen before we started talking, because it's a volume that I've taught out of many times, and so. Um, both as a scholar and as a teacher, I'm indebted 
um, to Jahan Ramazani and his work. That work has, as I intimated a moment ago, increasingly considered how poetry, which had been thought of, I think, formerly as somehow marginal to the emerging fields of post-colonial and then transnational studies, uh, perhaps because poetry seemed to lack the social and political scope of the novel or even of theater, um, was with its with poetry's kind of inexhaustible capacity for ambiguity and um, nuance and attentiveness to um, the linguistic utterance in its um, in its own right, in in fact was remarkably attuned um, to, for instance, the hybridity that characterizes uh, postcolonial experience and and transnational lives and um, and um, uh, channels of contact. Um, Jahan's work, I, I think it's no exaggeration to say, has changed the field of poetry studies um, in salutary ways and, in, and indeed has, has resituated poetry studies within the larger field of literary studies. Um, those, are, those are big claims I'm making about the, about the guest we have on, on the podcast today, but the scale of those interventions should not obscure the fact that at essence, um, our guest today is, is just a beautiful and deeply attentive, close reader of poems, um, and is clearly someone who loves poetry and loves poems and, um, loves to talk and think about them. And so I'm so pleased to welcome him onto the podcast today. Jahan Ramazani, how are you? I'm well, and thank you. It's such a, um, a treat to get a chance to talk with uh, a fellow lover of poetry, and <laughs> you yourself are such a wonderfully attentive, careful, thoughtful, um, you know, beautiful reader of poems. So I, it's it's a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Oh well, um, pleasure's all mine. Um, <laughs> thank you for saying that, though. It's uh, always nice to hear. Um, so, so you, like I, I was telling our guests, you've chosen um, Walcott, Derek Walcott, for, for us to read today. And, you know, our, our audience on this podcast, for some of them, you know, Walcott will need no introduction. I'm sure there are listeners now who knew Derek Walcott um, well themselves, but, but for others, um, this may not be a familiar name. And so, Jahan, I, I wonder if you might just give us a kind of... Um, biographical note um, to, to kind of situate Walcott in the history of 20th century and 21st century poetry that you have in mind. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, um, and and I'll I'll just say that uh, part of the reason that I chose Walcott, although I I was paralyzed for some time when you asked oh, no. me, oh, no. I, you said you could choose anyone. I was oh my god, there are so many poems that I love uh, from so many different parts of the world. Uh, an impossible thing, but I I I noticed um, that there weren't as many uh, poets um, from the postcolonial world, and I thought maybe. 
Walcott would be the kind of could be kind of a gateway into that world, okay. as he was for me uh, as a reader um, of of poetry. As I moved, as you said, from someone like Yeats then into postcolonial uh, writing, because there are really strong connections there. But yes, Derek Walcott uh, was born in 1930 in uh, on the island uh, of Saint Lucia in Castries, the city there. Um, and he grew up uh, there in St. Lucia, part of a, a small minority um, Methodist community there in a predominantly Catholic culture. Um, interesting connection there with Yeats, um, hmm. also part of a, a predominantly Irish world, yet uh, belonging to a Protestant minority. Um, and right. he, um, unlike many of the great uh, poets from uh, the post-colonial world, he um, stayed in the Caribbean uh, for much of the early part of his career. He had his education. He was one of the first uh, people to go to the um, then University College, now the University of the West Indies in uh, Mona, Jamaica, where um, mm -hmm. he um, you know, met with many of the um, great uh, minds and talents of the, the, that generation from around the Caribbean and was a member of the first graduating class in liberal arts. Um, he, um, would he have grown up in a, in a multilingual home? Yes. Or culture. I don't know very much about St. Lucia. That, that's period. a great, so, yeah. yes. So, and that is reflected in his work and as in so much Caribbean writing. So I think it's important mm -hmm. to say, uh, that, uh, in St. Lucia, the standard English is, uh, the official, <laughs> language. Um, and yet, uh, you know, St. Lucia traded hands between the British and the French 14 times. So there's a strong residual uh, presence there of um, French-based uh, um, Creole as well. So mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a lot. Uh, so uh, and then there's also a uh, creolized English as well. So it's really a kind of trilingual, if you want to call them really separate right. languages. Um, but a lot of code switching goes on in St. Lucia. Um, I, you know, I'll never forget arriving for the first time in St. Lucia and my cab driver uh, asked me in very formal, in, you know, in which direction shall we, you know, something uh -huh, <laughs> like, like uh -huh. that. Um, but then the next minute he's speaking in French uh, based Creole with, you know, um, people on the street. So a right. really fascinating melange of, of languages that he would have right. grown up in. Good, good, good. So I interrupted your, no, your no, no, narrative. No. So his early, so, so he's, he's educated, um, in the Caribbean, he, yes. he stays. Um, he stays there yeah. for quite some time. Uh, he uh, and I should say that he was very proud of having an education that was grounded in the classics of English literature. Of course, right. St. Lucia was still, um, uh, you know, a British colony at the time, um, and so you know he learned uh, the the classical literature, literary canon, um, and that's reflected in his work, but also the, the you know, the great 
um, British, uh, um, you know, writers he came to know very well. And I think we see in his work um, very strongly the presence of, um, you know, high modernism writers right. like Yeats and Eliot and um, and and Pound and Hart Crane and and others, W. H. Uh, Auden, um, and yeah. uh, so he's. Um, you know, like so many of the uh, post-colonial writers, trying to figure out ways of bringing together that what he calls a sound colonial education uh, with um, his more local cultural inheritances in his work. Um, right. he, he does go on to um, have a, much more of a presence in the wider world. He, his first book was published in 1962, um, so at the age of 32. And he, he um, in London, um, in a green night. And uh, from that point on, um, you know, he comes to the United States, he goes to Europe, and he becomes, he befriends people like Robert Lowell, um, uh-huh. and and uh, among others, uh, the great writers of, of who were presences in that moment in the literary world. In the Seamus, 60s. In the 60s, yeah, yeah, yes. Right. Uh, uh, people like Seamus Heaney also was, mm. a, uh, you know, spent a, lot, a fair amount of time with Seamus Heaney and, um, and as well as Walcott. And they were close friends and sort of rivals um, and had, uh, you know, um, wrote about one another's work uh, quite a bit, both uh, as authors, um, you know, come, uh, sort of from the parts of the world emerging out of British, the British colonial experience. So, and both as authors who spent significant amounts of time in the, in the U.S. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so Wolcott did teach for um, uh, quite some time in uh, the latter part of, of his life at Boston University, among other U.S. Mm-hmm. institutions. Um, he later in life built a house uh, in St. Lucia, I, I should say in the interval. Uh, so, so he was in Jamaica. He moved then to Trinidad for quite a while. I should also say that he was very involved in theater, um, mm-hmm. both writing his own plays and theatrical productions, uh, you know, supervising his own theatrical productions, prolific uh, journalist, uh, writing extensive reviews when while still living in the West Indies mm-hmm. uh, before he moved, um, you know, uh, in, at least for part of the year um, uh, to the U.S. Um, later in life, when uh, he built a home uh, back in St. Lucia and would spend part of the time in the U.S. each year and part of it in St. Lucia. And another thing that he and Heaney have in common is the Nobel Prize. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, Walcott won the Nobel Prize in 1992. I'll never forget it because he happened to be uh, in, in in Charlottesville for a reading at the University of Virginia where I teach um, uh, on that very day. Oh, and wow. Was, uh, when they was called being, him or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it, he, was being, uh, he was being trailed by a bunch of reporters and we were all wondering, we heard the news. Is he actually going to show up? And he did show up and was, uh-huh. you know, um, really pumped, as you might well imagine. So, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> but, I, uh, I, that, that makes me want to ask. So, I mean, um, I think you, you let slip um, sort of modestly uh, a few moments ago that he, like Heaney, these are 
both poets whom you had the chance to to know and talk with um both 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 of those poets now sadly have passed away in yes. in recent years but i wonder um jahan can can you take the narrative you've given us of walcott's life and um tell us how it intersected with your own coming to read him and then mm. to to know him personally and maybe um tell us a little bit about what he was like not on the page but you know uh, across the table or sure sure so um yeah i i mean i i first began to read his work um I, 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 having written that book on elegy and being obsessed with death mm-hmm. and grief and mourning and all those cheerful mm-hmm. subjects uh, yeah. that that are of course so central to 20th and 21st century poetry yeah. um i uh i i found myself um reading walcott and you know going from death to writing about um you know the the image of the wound in postcolonial poetry particularly in uh-huh. walcott's Omeros, which I had yeah. heard him read at the University of Virginia and was just totally, well, when it was man, in manuscript in the 1980s, and was totally blown away by the power of the rhythms of the language and its richness, even though, you know, I couldn't take in everything that was going on in the poetry. Right. I knew that this was something incredibly exciting and different. And yet that, again, had uh, strong connections, particularly for me with someone like W.B. Yeats, whose work I'd spent a lot of time with, in that um, Yeats, uh, as I mentioned, um, you know, finds himself in a kind of intercultural divided situation as right. someone who is very much, um, you know, uh, a, a, a leader of kind of Irish cultural nationalism in certain ways. And yet, uh, at the same time, um, very opposed to certain qualities of the Irish Catholic majority. Right. Um, uh, so that, that kind of, and, 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 uh, you know, uh, he, he, when he talks even about, um, you know, his uh, relationship with the English language, and I think this has a bearing particularly on the poem that we're going to yeah. look at closely together, um, sure. you know, he has, he's very aware of having a, a, a complex and even you know, vexed relationship to his English cultural heritage because right. he says, um, you know, on, on on the one hand, he you know, um, you know, he, he talks about how the Irish have undergone such persecution, and um, you know, he he talks about his hatred of the British uh, yeah. because of the centuries of colonization, um, you know, the devastation and suppression of Irish language, culture, traditions, and all the rest. Um, and yet this deep love of the English language, uh, this deep love um, of mm-hmm. authors like Shakespeare and Spencer, and mm-hmm. even maybe even William Morris. Um, Spencer, of course, very much part of the British colonial project in Ireland. Um, so that divided um, sense of allegiances 
that Yeats then shares in turn with uh, with a writer like James Joyce, who was also very important for uh, Walcott, and um, you know um, had similar ambivalences about English uh, right. Englishness and English cultural inheritances. Um, you know, I recognized in that uh, a connection a bridge um, that would help me to enter into this world of Walcott's work, even though I was not deeply familiar with the Caribbean. Um, And I just, um, you know, fell for it fully. And I'll just say biographically um, that, you know, I think, you know, my being a hyphenated Iranian American, probably. uh, I'm glad you brought uh, this up. (laughs) (laughs) Like you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I I think, I think, uh, you know, I think that that had certain resonances, obviously. We have our own ambivalences, right? Exactly. And And our own educations in English and love. And that sense of uh, kind of, you know, divided cultural inheritances and how do you reconcile these worlds that are often at war or in conflict with Mm -hmm. one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, that that very much helps to explain how you felt drawn well, first to Yeats, and and then the the way in which that attachment perhaps modeled one that you might form to this, you know, with this other poet, um, Derek Walcott. Um, the 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 piece you've judiciously left out was the sort of gossipy side of my question too, which ah. was what what was he like? What yeah, I mean, what was it like to talk to him? Yeah, so um, it was interesting. Uh, you know, I. Uh, I <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to think how I can put this. He, you know, um, Walcott um, had really strong opinions and he, <laughs> he was not afraid to share them. Uh, he was very concerned, uh, obviously, to be, and this is evident in his work, in a, uh, a, a book-length poem like Omeros, in which, right. uh, you know, he's directly uh, setting his work up against Homer's, Um, you know, so he's very concerned about his place in the canon. Um, I think it was the third time I met with him. Uh, One of the anthologies you kindly mentioned had, had just recently been published in the Northern Anthology of Modern Contemporary Poetry. And he came, he had just come back from a trip uh, in East Asia. And he said, Hey, I heard, I heard you gave me a, you know, a lot of pages. Um, <laughs> I said, yeah, you're a really important poet. And of course I would want to do that. And uh-huh. so he said, well, I want to see my pages. And I said, okay. And I was thinking, Oh no, uh, you know, how can I do this? He said, you know, come to my hotel, uh, tomorrow, but, but I want to see, I want to see my pages. So I, I, you know, scurried around looking for a, co- a clean copy, uh, of, of the anthology and some local bookstores couldn't find one, had to bring my teaching copy and, you know, very quickly erased some of my markings next to some of his poems, sat there at lunch with him, with uh, one of my uh, wonderful grad students um, who happened to be a woman. And I will say that um, Walcott, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, had a history of, um, you know, uh, of how shall we say, um, you know, not... um, 
of of kind of vexed relationships with uh, with women, sometimes uh, board, you know self evidently sexist, uh, um, and uh, so I was concerned about that dynamic in his complimenting her in various ways, which of course made me very Mary made very made me very uncomfortable. She was right. she was great about it. Um, then uh, he wanted to see my pages. I let him look at my pages. He looked at every one of the forty odd pages oh my that God. I put in the Norton anthology, and then closed closed the book. Said, "Huh," and he couldn't re- help but remark on the fact that certain o- or other authors who were adjacent had gotten many fewer pages. So, so that you know, and he wasn't true. at all interested <laughs> in talking about my my research and writing about him. He was really just concerned about his place in the canon. So, um, you know, well, it, it, yeah. it, it's understandable. But, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. you know, there's, there's a kind of, um, cynical view that we could, and, and perhaps at some yeah. level should take of that yeah. kind of, you know, reputation measuring or whatever yeah. we want to call it. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I guess I would just say, you know, somewhat more sympathetically to yeah. that kind of self-regard yeah. that, you know, particularly for someone who grew up right. at the at the kind of margins of the culture to which he aspired, you know, to be included in, to to it must be a a profound thing to to look at a Norton Absolutely. anthology Absolutely. that contains you know mostly poets who don't look like you and right. who don't have your your background and and to see that you're, that you belong. Um, Absolutely. In you that said company. It so well, yeah. uh, Cameron, I, I, I think that, um, you know, for um, a uh, Afro-Caribbean uh, poet who, you know, who grew up in what was considered, uh, you know, a backwater, you know, kind of colonial yeah. backwater. And someone who used to watch, you know, the, these enormous, tourist, uh, you know, kind of cruise ships come into Castries Harbor and so mm-hmm. forth. And, you know, he was among the the kind of, you know, dark local people who um, were seen as kind of part of the, the local color in many senses. Right. Yes, to then find his own work and his own voice represented um, in, you know, alongside people he had read and relished and loved and who transformed his life, people like Eliot and Yeats and, and, and others, I think was, uh, was, you know, extremely important. And I think it helps explain a certain insecurity that obviously yeah. he, he, he had and that you felt in those kinds of moments. And yet at the same time, everyone who met him or knew him when he was a young poet, you know, age of 14 and 15, trying to self-publish his own first poem on the street uh-huh. or whatever, going to college, uh, everyone who encountered him thought, this guy has an outsized talent. You know, he has, enor- you know, he was often thought of as this enormously talented, right. um, you know, kind of genius of a, of a writer. So he he also knew that, that he wa- uh-huh. had an incredible gift for yeah. metaphor, for the rhythms of language. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. It's what I remember. I mean, my first reading of him came in college and it was Omeros that w mm -hmm. was assigned um, in the class that I was taking. And I, and I, and I just remember being overwhelmed by the, mm -hmm. um, the, the sort of ear for rhythm and the, and the, and the beauty and the ambition of that, text, yes. which like you say, sort of wants to, you know, seems eager to, to be in dialogue with Homer. Right. Um, and, <laughs> right. but, but also, you know, like, Dante say right, right. isn't that the poems exactly. in a kind of terzarima isn't it exactly. right so yeah exactly um all right fantastic so the so the um th thank you for that background the 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 poem of far cry from africa is um a young man's poem is it not i mean i i think yeah. i am using the dates in your anthology yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah, that yeah, he yeah. wrote it in 1956, I think, or, so, or it so was he, he, magazine he, publication he, or something? Yeah, he mm -hmm. magazine publication in 56, um, book publication in 62. He wrote it, uh, he told us he wrote it in 1953. So, oh, gosh. Yeah, in his At 23. early, early yeah. 20s. Right. You know, yeah. Okay. And those dates will, will of course, um, matter. I mean, maybe not in their yeah. granular specificity, but in terms of the era that in, in which they situate us for reasons that I think will become clear when we listen, uh, we have a recording, um, and, and we'll listen to that. Um, now, uh, unless Jahan, I, I mean, I was, I was going to ask for some yeah. Yeah. context. Yeah. Do you I'll think it quick. would be useful to give that before sure. the reading? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Just, just yeah. that here we have a, a speaker of the poem, obviously not situate, you know, um, who's, who's closely resembles Derek Walcott in, in his youth. Um, and he is looking out from uh, presumably the Caribbean, but uh, the poem is largely um, reflecting on the Mau Mau uprising or uh, rebellion in the 1950s, um, which was a revolt against British colonial rule mm -hmm. on the part of uh, a, a a group of Kenyans uh, who um, were, you know, violently um, res resisting at that moment uh, the white settlers who were in Kenya, um, and I'll just say that the. Um, there were brutalities and atrocities on both sides. Um, the, the, he refers to a white child hacked in bed uh, in the mm -hmm. poem, which is a reference to, uh, you know, an, a six-year-old uh, child who was, who was killed uh, early on in the conflict in, in, his, in his sleep. Um, and, uh, and yet, I will say, it was a, a question of disproportional violence at the same right. time. The British um, hanged over a thousand people. They um, uh, in, put in, in uh, internment camps or concentration camps uh, over a hundred thousand people. Um, there were tens of thousands of uh, um, people who were killed uh, by the British. Ruthless suppression of this revolt. This was happening in the 1950s, in the when, 1950s. When, when Walcott was in his 20s so, so, in the yes. Caribbean and sort of in, looking to, to Africa and thinking. Exactly. He's yeah. looking to Africa and is trying to uh, understand his relationship on the one to his African inheritances, his African ancestry as someone who's 
um, you know, four parents would have come because of enslavement uh, through the Middle Passage to the Caribbean uh, mm-hmm. in bondage. On the other hand, he also uh, has uh, both racial inheritances on his paternal side uh, from you know, Britain and Europe. Um, and uh, at the same time, of course, cultural and linguistic inheritances from England. So he's mm-hmm. trying to think, how do I put these things together, these sides of myself together? Although he only comes to his own intimate personal experience toward the end of the poem. Right. Yeah. Um, that that's that's terrific. And so we'll we'll hear the the word um, kikuyu um, early in the poem, and that's a reference to the to the ethnic right. group in in Kenya um, that was um, uh, participating in in this um, uprising exactly. um, against British colonial rule. Exactly. Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Good. Uh, so, um, thank thank you. Here, here then is um, Derek Walcott reading the poem, and and once again, for those who want to look at a text as as they listen, um, that link should be available to you in the episode notes. A far cry from Africa, and the, the title of the poem is ambiguous. It's supposed to mean a cry of torture and also a cry of distance. A wind is ruffling the tawny pelt of Africa. Kikuyu, quick as flies, batten upon the bloodstreams of the veldt. Corpses are scattered through a paradise. Only the worm, Colonel of Carrion, cries, waste no compassion on these separate dead. Statistics justify and scholars seize the salience of colonial policy. What is that to the white child hacked in bed, to savages expendable as Jews? Threshed out by beaters, the long rushes break in a white dust of ibises whose cries have wheeled since civilizations dawn from the parched river or beast-teeming plain. The violence of beast on beast is read as natural law, but upright man seeks his divinity by inflicting pain. Delirious as these worried beasts, his wars dance to the tightened carcass of a drum, while he calls courage still that native dread of the white peace contracted by the dead. Again, brutish necessity wipes its hands upon the napkin of a dirty cause, again a waste of our compassion as with Spain the gorilla wrestles with the superman. I who am poisoned with the blood of both, where shall I turn, divided to the vein? I who have cursed the drunken officer of British rule, how choose between this Africa and the English tongue I love? Betray them both or give back what they give? How can I face such slaughter and be cool? How can I turn from Africa and live? Well, um, I always like to ask, when, especially when we have a recording, um, and and I'm thinking also of, of your telling the story of um, you know 
among the encounters you had with him was was were these sort of public readings. Um, what you find yourself thinking about or discovering anew, just in the voice, uh, even apart from the particular content that it carries in this case. Yeah, um, it was interesting listening to this uh, this time. It's a, it's a very formal voice, and there's uh-huh. something very f- obviously formal. Um, you know, it, to to our ears in the uh, 2020s, obviously it sounds we're, we're so used to a kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, poetry readings that are um, very how shall we say, um, low register and uh, not florid and not very, you know, uh, formal in this way. Intimate, maybe. Yeah, much more intimate. Um, It sounds, um, you know, at a certain level of kind of grandness almost that it's aspiring to in its formality through that voice. And yet I will say, while we might think, think, oh, that just, he sounds like he's trying to be more British than the the British. (laughs) I don't think that's quite fair because, you know, in the Caribbean, he he talked about how in the Caribbean, um, there is a love of grandeur. There's a love Mm -hmm. of large gestures. There's a love of formality and artifice Mm -hmm. and rhetoricity to the culture um, Mm -hmm. that anthropologists uh, like Roger Abrams have talked about, you know, the man of word, words of the West Mm -hmm. Indies. And when I hear Walcott speak like that, I can also hear a certain other, you know, West Indian kind of orators I've heard mm-hmm. who speak with incredible formality and eloquence. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's, I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing um, that it, it partly comes out of a Caribbean-ness. Um, uh-huh. yeah. And w- which is also present. I mean, this is an obvious thing, but present in the accent, which isn't a, a British accent, right? Absolutely. So yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Um, he, helpfully you know gives us a way in um in 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 how he sets up his own reading by by glossing his own title or at least pointing out that it contains an ambiguity a far cry mm-hmm. from africa um john what you know how how does um what's the question about that how does the that and maybe it's worth sort of just teasing out and making explicit what the um what the double meaning Sure. If indeed it is double, um, what the double meaning is there. But then having having done so, I guess my question is, how does that announce a kind of problem or an occasion for the poem as a whole? You know, um, but in the tension between the, 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 um, the two meanings of that phrase, how can we, how does that allow us to think about the kind of predicament that the speaker of the poem finds himself in as he begins to speak. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I think you're absolutely right about the, the, you know, it's helpful that Walcott points to that doubleness um, and that this is a poem that's full of such uh, mm. doublings and mm. triplings even um, because it's a poem that's just full, rich in a kind of ambivalence um, about its subject. And I, you know, uh, yes, a far cry from Africa. Do we, do we hear in that, that, that the author is, or the speaker is sympathetically listening 
to a, a cry from far away Africa that he's sympathetically hearing, maybe even the cry of the oppressed in Africa as this revolt um, is taking place? Or is this um, a, f- a far cry from the Africa that he might have loved or, um, um, you know, uh, f- th- thought of as himself very much connected to. And, um, you know, th- right. those are just two of the different ways of thinking right. about it, um, but many more. Yeah. Well, so in that, just to 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 hold on to that second yeah. way for for a moment longer, right? Right. So there is that idiom in case, right? It, it it's it's hard sometimes to explain these these sorts <laughs> right. of idioms because we just want to say them and hope that people know what they mean. But yeah. Um, yeah. right, we say that something is a far cry from something else when we mean it's um, an inferior version of exactly. that other thing, or exactly. or quite distant in some way from it. Yeah. In 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 terms, of, okay. assuming and i and i think he of course we should or it's Mm -hmm. not just an assumption he you know it's there um Mm -hmm. that that meaning is operative here would the implication be that i the the you know presumably caribbean speaker Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. poem am Mm -hmm. hardly in africa myself or, or and or might it mean were you suggesting a moment ago that it might mean that the the Africa that is present in the poem is a far cry from the image I'd had in my mind as a Caribbean, you know, African diasporic um, um, person from the Africa that exists in fact, right? Yes, I think yeah. I think that is one of the implications of the title, because as we, um, you know, we'll see as we dive into it more. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a real sense of, um, you know, how, how shall we put it, uh, revulsion toward uh, the violence. Um, you know, uh, th- that is part and parcel of this anti-colonial revolt. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think I think um, I think both things are there. And the poem is, I think, as that title intimates, both trying to sympathetically move into and understand uh, the um, re- you know the revolt and um, what's happening there and feels very much alienated from it at the same time. Um, yeah. So. My asking you about how the, the the title of the poem maybe gives us a way into thinking of about the occasion of the poem as you've done too, is it occurs to me, like I'm always in these conversations, find myself referring back to the Stevens line, you know, the poem is the cry of its own occasion. Right. Right. Um, that the, the idea of the, um, whatever it is that he hears or senses in, in his relation to the place named by that word Africa um, produces the, 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 his own utterance, which is the poem. Right. right? Great. Um, And I like what you were saying too, that it isn't, it isn't there, there, it, it isn't simply a, a poem that, um, evinces um, sympathy for what is happening to people with whom he feels some kind of 
affiliation or, you know, um, mm. identitarian kind mm. of, um, uh, um, sympathy, but, mm-hmm. but, but also that there's, there's a kind of on top of that or, or undergirding that somehow there's this tone of sort of, um, revulsion, I think was the mm-hmm. word that you mm-hmm. used. Um, mm-hmm. cons- yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, th- th- let's let's get into the the, the opening lines of the poem. A wind is ruffling the tawny pelt, and and that's our first line break of Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder mm-hmm. what you make just of that first line break, Jahan. Is 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 that a sort of interesting enchantment to you? <laughs> if if so, how, or what do you make of the first line on its own? Even yeah, yeah. So um, you know, and I, I will say that. Uh, it certainly, the enjambment certainly, uh, well, it does a number of things. First, it gives us a sense of rhythmically, metrically, that we're playing around with something close to iambic pentameter or to blank, right. you know, blank verse, although there are some occasional rhymes in this poem yeah. as well um, that, that, that crop up, but there's no regular kind of rhyme scheme beyond maybe the ABAB at the very beginning and then yeah. some, some, some recur- recursions of that sort. Short uh, rhymes and and half rhymes, so yeah. um, it partly uh, sets up the um, the rhythmic patterning of the poem, but it does also, I think, highlight that beast metaphor uh, right. that that um, the tawny pelt, um, and you know um, the the word beast is one that recurs throughout uh, later on in the in the poem, and I think the the poem evinces this kind of real vexed response to the ways in which humans can act like beasts, maybe even worse than beasts in mm-hmm. certain ways. Um, but here, yes, uh, it's it's complicated because, you know, the tawny pelt we think of maybe, you know, is, is um, the tawny pelt of Africa. Is Africa being compared to um, an animal? Is this right. an um, a replication of certain colonialist sort of stereotypes of Africa and associations of it, or is are those going to be uh, are, are those in play only to be undercut and ironized? Um, a wind is ruffling. Are, are those the winds of anti-colonial revolt and mm. revolution that are you know blowing through Africa that he's going to um, that he's meditating? on in yeah. this vex poem yeah that, that oh that I, I i i think that's a compelling um suggestion you've just made i as i sort of look at the poem on the page you know i i noticed that it's in three stanzas which at a glance y- you might think are the same length but i i counted and and i i think we we get a 10 line stanza followed by an 11 line stanza followed by a 12 line stanza. So there's yeah. a pattern there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. it's sort of accretive or growing, you know, it's a snowballing <laughs> kind of um, stanza. Um, yeah. it's, so, so, so maybe with, you know, that in mind, it makes sense to, to sort of segment off our discussion into a discussion of the first stanza, then sure. the second, and then the third. And sure. it, and in sort of looking at the first, um, I, one thing I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about is like, what is the um, imagined or implied vantage point from which 
these descriptions are being mm-hmm. offered mm-hmm. or recorded even mm-hmm. like where mm-hmm. where's the camera you know <laughs> um it because it seems you know in that first the, you know just to get us started maybe in that mm-hmm. first sure, sentence sure. that first mm-hmm. line and a half mm-hmm. in the first line it might seem like it's a kind of a close-up on a particular animal or something yeah. but then it zooms yeah. all the way out to into Africa. a kind of like yeah. global satellite yeah. or yeah. something yeah. right um so maybe with with that disorienting um yeah. kind of yeah. m- movement in mind um yeah. tell us tell us how you how you sort of wrap your arms around even just that first 10 lines of the poem. So I, you know, I, I, it's, um, I think the vantage point is one that involves, um, I I hadn't thought of putting it this way ever before, but your question makes me, as I'm looking at it, I want to say that there's a lot of zooming in and zooming out, you know, Mm -hmm. that, um, that, you know, as you say, in those first couple of lines, we, uh, we get uh, very sort of distanced, almost allegorical uh, reflections on, you know, uh, that nevertheless um, zoom in on the worm as a kernel mm-hmm. of carrion. We zoom in on the single white child hacked in bed. Mm-hmm. Um, yet we also have these reflections that are that are almost kind of Auden-esque, um, you know, uh, statistics justify and scholars seize the salience. I'm laughing because I have, uh, I mean, I could, I, I, I want to prove this to you or something, but uh, in my, in the margin of, of that, on that line, I have the word Auden written down. Exactly. I mean, it sounds like Auden, but for people, I don't know, who didn't yeah. read the same things we did or yeah. don't yeah. understand that association, can you maybe say something then, since we're both apprehending sure. it at this moment? Sure. So we're referring to the to the English poet W. H. Auden, um, yeah. uh, a, a modernist poet, well, you know, older than Walcott, younger right. than perhaps the high that sort of first generation of high modernists. Uh, but what right. what does it mean, Jahan, to be Auden esque? Yeah. In, you know, for Walcott, how do, what is it that we're both attuned to here? So I, I think in in this moment, um, he's taking on board in a way that Auden does as well, uh, kind of language of impersonal, bureaucratic, statistical uh, sort of analysis, uh, you know, political, uh, socio-political sort of rhetoric and satirizing it. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would say that in an Auden poem like The Unknown, Citizen, which is written mm-hmm. entirely in this kind of satire, satiric voice, intoning the impersonal discourse of a kind of bureaucratic, you know, oh. statistical knowledge. Uh, that I, I think that that comes in usefully here for Walcott as a way of skewering how um, you know colonialism will try to. Um, uh, say justify um, the the deaths uh, that occur, um, uh, you know, as part of uh, colonial rule, um, you know, f- through statistical, through these very detached or remote right. methods of explanation, which which takes us again zooming as to a, a very zoomed out perspective right. um, that is juxtaposed with with the very zoomed in point of view that is deeply 
a, a word that occurs twice in the poem, compassion. Um, mm. You know that 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 uh, that that um, you know really re- tries to think about and engage the specificity of death as it's experienced in this kind of violent conflict. And b- both times the word compassion comes up, it comes up in proximity to the word waste. Right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking yeah. about how, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of speculating here, but please check me on it. Um, how Walcott in the Caribbean, um, and I, I would be more specific than that, though I don't know where he was at this mm-hmm. point, you know, mm-hmm. at the point of the composition mm-hmm. of the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, I take it from the biography you've given us that he was somewhere in the Caribbean at this yeah. point. Yeah, Jamaica, that, I think. Still. In, in yeah. Jamaica, yeah. good. Yeah. Um, that, you know, we're in an age that is presumably pre, just pre-television news kind of age, at least certainly in the sense that we have, you know, we have come to know it. Right. So that if he's getting... In, re- in real time or to whatever approximation of real time that was possible then, to, he's getting news. It's in newspapers, right? right. Or, or magazines right. or right. things exactly. like that. Yeah. Exactly. And he, he wrote for some of those, uh, the, right. you know, Jamaica Gleaner, for example, mm-hmm. and, and then in Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, he absolutely, newspapers and radio, of course. Right, radio. Um, uh, I mean, he himself became quite well known in the Caribbean, partly through this uh, uh, BBC uh, program, Caribbean Voices, that projected, um, you know, Caribbean authors across the Caribbean. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the BBC, you know, well, in particular, pre- presumably would have been a, a, the kind of prime outlet of the kind of colonial line. Here, exactly. Right? The, uh, exactly. Right. exactly. Uh, um, yeah. uh, so I guess, you know, why do I raise the thing about newspapers rather than television and, and radio is an interesting um, kind of interstitial technology here, but uh, well, uh, maybe because it, 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 it builds in a kind of level of distance or abstraction mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, reduction mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. sort of um, statistic or linguistic sign or something, the atrocities that are being committed um, rather than the kind of visual immediacy of um, the news technologies that we're more familiar with now. And, um, and, and maybe some of that is present here. That's great. The, those lines, statistics justify and scholar mm-hmm. sees the mm-hmm. salience of colonial policy. Then th- those lines that you and I both sort of heard the echoes of Auden in, mm-hmm. and and you, mm-hmm. and I love that reading you gave us of, of what that voice is doing here. They lead right into those, to, to the line that you flagged for us before the poem, before we listened to the recording, that, that quite violent, line what is that to the white child hacked in bed that line ends in a question mark and then is followed by the line to savages expendable as jews um so it it seems as that well it seems as though the poet is bringing a kind of historical knowledge or awareness to the to the encounter with what is happening now in mm-hmm. front of him and somehow 
um, y- using that that knowledge as a as a lens through which to 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 make sense of what he's witnessing or or indirectly mm-hmm. witnessing. Uh, but mm-hmm. but um, Jahan, could you say something more about th- those two lines that end yeah. the, the first stanza? Yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I guess the most striking thing about those is that they the questions turn in different directions. Uh, you know, w- one is the question that seems completely sympathetic with um, the you know civilian settlers in Kenya who are being killed by the Mau Mau. Uh, what is that to the white child hacked in bed? But then the very next line, we turn in the opposite direction to savages, which I read as to so-called savages, right. to, um, to, to, you know, to the native, so-called native peoples, the Africans who are ex- uh, here, he says, expendable as Jews or asks expendable as Jews, uh, a, a, a uh, horrific line um, that, of course, is now comparing the uh, British colonial uh, killing of right. uh, the Mau Mau, um, of the uh, Kikuyu, to the fairly recent in that moment in 1953, right? Yeah, eight uh, years like, uh, yeah, following later. the liberation of, yeah. the, of the camps. Yeah, yeah. Of, of the Holocaust, the, the perhaps most systematic, uh, mechanized mass murder in perhaps in, in human history. Um, and so to, to um, you know, he's, He's juxta- he manages in the move from one line to the next to draw our attention to the suffering and the atrocity being uh, committed on both sides. Both halves of that line, then. I mean, I think both. I, I'm I'm totally persuaded by your 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 kind of reading of the word savages as like um it's as though the word were in quotation marks mm-hmm, um. Mm-hmm. um but of course, the the idea of the expendability of the mm-hmm. Jews mm-hmm. is is itself as though it were in quotation marks, right? Exactly. It's not as though the poem exactly. deems them to exactly. be expendable. Oh but, my right, gosh! Yeah, yes. Right. Yeah. No, and right. and this is this is an undercurrent throughout Walcott's career. There, there's um, a, a he constantly goes back. And reminds us that the so-called savagery, right? That the you know Europe has often attributed to Africa right. is something that you know occurred on a much more in a much more systematic way in the heart of Europe. Uh, this great right. European civilization um, that he is also an inheritor of. Right, right, right. And so there, there's a connection being made between. Um, Nazism and right. colonialism. Right. I mean, just to, to not to exactly. find a point on it, but yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, this the, those questions aren't answered, right? They're rhetorical right. questions. Um, right. But it, perhaps as though an answer or something like that, we we get a stanza break, and and the second stanza now. Um, I find um, I'll just offer this as an observation and and ask you to to reflect on it. It, mm-hmm. it feels to me here as though um, 
the kind of particulars of the mm-hmm. historical mm-hmm. conflict mm-hmm. are are mm-hmm. are kind of I don't know what the right verb is, but mm-hmm. sublimated or mm-hmm. abstracted mm-hmm. or buried somehow. Yeah. Um, and we get a, a kind of allegorical right. sort of scene or something yeah. instead. So yeah. it, um, t- talk to us about that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I think you're right. Uh, and and we, we didn't even mention, for example, in the earlier stanza that we get uh, the Kikuyu, you know, quick as flies, uh, mm-hmm. battening upon the bloodstreams of, of the belt. So again, um, a much yeah. kind of closer, you know, fly fly level uh, sort of attention, uh, as well as the you know the worm and the singular single white child, um, who mm-hmm. is again not allegorical in any way. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Then a move. Uh, to a, a kind of um, reflection uh, much more broadly on patterns of human uh, violence. Uh, across, you know, we, we get um, a reference here of how you know, he's reflecting on what's happened um, since civilization's dawn. So suddenly our time horizons have greatly uh, <laughs> extended, yeah. right? Um, right? And, uh, you know, the, he talks about how uh, this, you know, the, their, he, he reflects on the violence of beast on beast on the one hand mm-hmm. and on the other, uh, you know, in other words, there is, as Tennyson calls it, you know, nature red in tooth and claw, the, this kind of raw violence of the natural world, but it seems even worse uh, here, uh, a, a violence that is um, based in, you know, he particularly is thinking, I, I, I believe, of, of uh, referring to kind of religious and mm-hmm. other uh, kinds of justifications for violence that in his mind make it uh, all the more abhorrent when he says, um, you know, the uh, upright man seeks his divinity. And again, this is very satiric, I think, um, seeks his divinity by inflicting pain. Um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So mm-hmm. thinking of the way in which colonialism and um, you know, religious, uh, you know, Christian expansionism, uh, you know, the white man's burden, and all the rest, uh, mm-hmm. are, are going hand in hand with one another. Um, you, you observed um, a, a little while ago, as we were setting up the poem, that um, that it seems to be in a kind of, I don't know what we should call it, like it's pentameter-ish. Or something, um, you know. What did Frost say? There's like strict iambic and loose iambic. So this is loose <laughs> yeah. iambic. Loose iambic. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and that it rhymes though is sort of irregularly and and kind mm-hmm. of haphazardly. Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, y- you know, I, when when you referred to the 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 way this stanza seems preoccupied with what w- your phrase was patterns of human violence. Um, I wonder. I, I mean, I, I'm. I I want to know what the 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 metrical regularity, such as we have it, or the or even the presence of rhyme, which I mm-hmm. hear in this stanza, um, 
I mean, it's there in every stanza, though not in the same pattern. You're right. Mm-hmm. But here, for instance, the word pain rhymes mm-hmm. with the word plain. Mm-hmm. Um, the word it, with the poem, the stanza ends in a couplet, mm-hmm. you know, with dread mm-hmm. rhyming on dead. Um, these rhymes feel um, pretty present and insistent to me. And um, I just wonder, I guess, if you have you know, what, what could one say about the fact that the poem is in this, um, mm-hmm. this kind of mm-hmm. meter or, or that it does have this rhyme. I suppose one thing we could say is that it's sounding, it's a, it's a way to sound kind of public. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's perhaps it's a yeah. way to sound, um, British or something, right. Right. but, right. but what do you make of the, of the rhymes or do you have reading, do you have a reading of, of the fact that it rhymes or, or any of the rhymes in particular yeah. or, yeah. yeah. So, uh, no, it's a great question. I, I think, um, that the, uh, um, you know, in the first stanza, we start off with very regular rhyme, pelt, flies, velt, dies of paradise, mm, paradise. Uh, that and that then starts to sour and get increasingly dissonant as the as the stanza moves on um so yeah jews doesn't rhyme with anything right, right? except think, maybe yeah. some C's? resonance yeah, with c's exactly um which which has some resonance with cries you know mm-hmm. so so yeah things get more and more de- dissonant as the stanza goes on as yeah. we as we get zoom more and more zoomed in on the violence and i think in the second stanza you're absolutely right about about those um, those perfect rhymes, and we almost get a heroic couplet at the end of the second stanza. And I think you know that that coincides with these lines about you know the the death and its um, uh, yeah. you know uh, the kind of closure of death and the closure sonically. I think you know th- there's a clicking shut as uh, um, you know Sylvia Plath would put it at, mm-hmm. at the end there um, that uh, that I think resonates with with what's going on thematically. Yeah, and well that 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 what you call that that cup that heroic almost heroic mm-hmm. couplet while he calls courage still trying to recover the the syntax is 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 not easy there right <laughs> it's not easy i'm going to read the sentence the sentence again so this mm-hmm. is the last four lines of this 11 line stanza delirious as these worried beasts his wars dance to the tightened carcass of a drum while he calls courage still that native dread of the white peace contracted by the dead. Um, the white peace is, yeah. uh, is a, is a really resonant phrase here. I mean, yeah. it, um, it, it seems clearly to in, in evoke the, the kind of racial politics of, of the poem, but say, say more maybe about the, the phrase white peace and what it's doing for you. Yeah, so white white peace is in is in some ways obviously a um, uh, a, 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 a just a, at the most basic level a reference to death. You know, he calls mm-hmm. courage still that native dread of the white peace of 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 death of dying of you know in the but obviously as you as you're suggesting yeah. this is uh, a peace. Uh, that is imposed, you know, given 
white supremacist, you know, colonial rule through, um, you know, systematic killing and oppression of the African population here. So peace, I think, is, again, quite ironically, um, you know, brought in here. It's a, and it's 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 such a weird way to describe death too. It's yes. as though death is like a disease caught right. by the dead, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. right. No, exactly. Yeah. That's really true. Yeah. Um, but okay. you know, I but yeah, but Cameron, I if I just wanted to say, please, you know, in response to your question, so so that that's a more particular way of of thinking about the rhyme and the poem at mm. the more general level. You know, here we have this poet in his early twenties who wants to prove his chops, right? And right. what is the kind of discipline that he has found himself working in? It's the, the discipline, the metrical and, um, you know, literary discipline of literary English, the the, the great canon. And like, um, you know, the great Jamaican writer who uh, we think of as often, um, you know, a, a thoroughly uh, Black American writer, uh, Claude McKay, who yeah. in, you know, had to prove, wanted to prove himself over and over and over again, you know, in form the the form of the sonnet, for example, uh, that he had could master and even outdo anyone in this white coated form. Um, I think Walcott similarly is taking, you know, the the techniques, the structures, uh, you know, of the uh, how shall we say the 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 Western. Uh, lyric poem of ambivalence in a way mm-hmm. um and uh you know and the the poem of meditation um of broad reflection and you know showing that he can use all of those tools in quite powerful ways to describe an experience that had not found its way into utterance in the canons of English poetry. Um, I, I love it. I'm thinking of, you know, the, the, the line, which I, I wish I could quote it perfectly, but I can't, but that, that in, in, the, in Shakespeare's Tempest, you know, Caliban saying, exactly. you know, you taught me language and the, right. the prophet on it is, is um, I learned how to curse or what's the exactly. line, you know, exactly. that, that matters of course, also to the, you know, to the, Amy Césaire and the and the great retelling of, of the Tempest in in, in Tempet. Um, Absolutely, and and that's yeah. great that you uh, cite that because I think in the third and final stanza we get a very short line, the shortest line in yeah. the poem, "I, I who have cursed," and you know I think that 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 he's very much. Uh, he had to be thinking of, you know, Caliban uh, yeah. taking on the, the the language of the of Prospero. And, and, and what's English. amazing about that is that, so that's Shakespeare. That's Caliban addressing Prospero. But in a in a sense, the analogy there would be it's sort of Walcott is to Shakespeare exactly. as, <laughs> as as Caliban <laughs> is to Prospero. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and and and. But you've you've made me think of something else too, in in sort of reminding us that you know Walcott is a as a young and kind of up and coming poet at this point, and in thinking again about you know the historical moment that he finds himself in, 
it, it, it of course makes perfect sense. I mean, to, to me as someone who's like, I've, 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 I work on the poetry of like the fifties and sixties that, well, you know, Anglophone poets, I mean, this was a moment of a kind of return to form and Mm -hmm. that that was Mm -hmm. a a marker of literariness in a way that, you know, 50 years earlier, it would have seemed the opposite. It would have seemed, you know, but, but here, it, it, you know, like Richard Wilbur is writing his, exactly. his tidy little, you know, poems, which are marvelous. And, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. so, yeah, right. Makes sense that Walcott would be for, perhaps for different reasons or additional right. reasons be, um, be attempting this kind of thing. Absolutely. And this, and, you know, this is obviously before, uh, you know, the, the loosening occurs, of course, with the great loosening uh, of the late the, 50s, the <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, with the confession of people like Lowell and so Lowell, yeah. of course, as you know, better than yeah. I do is still writing, you know, very formal, gnarly, you know, tightly knotted uh, verse yeah. at this moment. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And, and here it seems right. Like those rhymes are kind of markers of that imprinting of culture or something yes um, yes uh, okay yes. fantastic exactly. yeah. um the 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 third stanza now be- begins with this um sort of movement that i find linguistically quite lovely uh, um the first line of the third stanza begins with the word again and the second line of the third stanza ends with that word so mm-hmm. again brutish necessity mm-hmm. wipes its hands mm-hmm. upon the napkin of a dirty cause again a waste of our compassion as with Spain, the gorilla wrestles with the Superman. Um, that, um, again, again, gesture is the, is there, um, I mean, you said earlier, the poem is full of doublings and triplings mm-hmm. and so on mm-hmm. and ambivalences. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of that, that, that kind of marker of replicability or something? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's great. I, the, I mean, my sense is that here it's partly following on the previous stanza in which he's basically talking about how human beings have massacred each other, you know, uh, since time memorial. Um, but that also there's a particular kind of killing that goes um, with, you know, it go, takes place within colonialism uh, that wants to see itself as in the service of some kind of higher power in yeah. a way. Um, I think that, again, uh, is about kind of the exhaustion that we feel in our own moment, I think, of, yeah. you know, here we are again, witnessing another spectacle of violence and feeling, uh, you know, very much as um, as observers, as spectators, and trying to figure out how the hell to make sense of it, how the hell we should feel about it. Um, and I guess, you know, in, in, if, if I mm-hmm. may just make um, a remark in connection with an earlier point you made in relation to the news media, um, I, it seems to me that precisely what's going on here is, you know, trying to carve out through poetry a different kind of space from what you get in opinion journalism or uh, now we would say in social media or what have you. That is um, a space for feelings that are very complicated, very contradictory. Um, you know, I'll, 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 if I may, uh, I just yeah. want to throw in a, a story about how 
you know, I've never found it possible to give a kind of lecture about this poem because it's so conflicted um, and so ambivalent. It's drawn mm. in both directions. Um, and, and, and so what I often have done is have my students actually debate the poem and draw out the sympathies on one side toward the British, toward mm-hmm. their you know culture, toward the suffering that the white child hacked in bed has has uh, mm-hmm. has has had, and their family and so forth. Um, on the other hand, the 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 powerful sympathies with the Mau Mau and with um, colonial you know anti colonial revolt and the desire for liberation, that um, wind that's ruffling uh, through right. the tawny pelt of Africa again. So. Um, and and uh, you know abhorrence of the way that the British have responded, and my students going through stanza by stanza do a beautiful job of kind of dramatizing how the poem goes back and forth, and you know in phrase one phrase after another or one image after another, you know you can you can push it one way or the other, yeah. and by doing that they show how the poem, you know. Enacts within its very conflicted, very um, convoluted, sometimes kind of you know tonal uh, moves and imagistic shifts and all the rest. Uh, you know, a, a spectator's uh, sense of uh, you know the, just the the difficulty of an emotional. Of, of the thinking feeling that one has mm-hmm. when one has deep connections with on both sides of such a conflict as we'll hear later in the stanza. Oh, that's, that, 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 that sounds great. What an interesting classroom exercise and experience that, that, <laughs> that is, um, you know, I also find myself thinking it, as you describe the, the kind of ambivalences and tensions and mm-hmm. conflicts and so on, these words in a different context, but also about like fifties poems mm-hmm. might, mm-hmm. might sort of describe the way we are learning and the new critics are wanting us to think about the, the resources and affordances of, of poems in That's general. Right. That's right. It's just That's that here the stakes seem quite different right. um, and, right. and, and much more sort of um, sort of radically situated in the identity of the speaker. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. It's not yeah. just the tensions of the well-wrought right. urn, a yeah. kind of high aesthetic, uh, yeah. you know, kind of very neatly closed kind of tension. It's a, it's it's a tension that involves you know belonging and politics and race yeah. and identity an identity that feels like it's being ripped asunder in some and, ways and, and and something as simple and and here we'll get to these lines which are really the I mean in a way the, the sort of crux of the poem comes at the end of the poem I think right <laughs> um, the um, the 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 very simple act of expressing oneself because it has to be in a particular language right it is already a kind of commitment of one's energies in a political direction you exactly know, that, yeah exactly exactly um, yeah um i so the i doesn't come until the 
the the fifth line of the f- right. the final stanza i who am poisoned with the blood of both where shall i turn divided to the vein um poisoned is such a strong Whew. word there yeah yeah especially because he's talking about blood and you would think that you know the blood is what nourishes it what gives us oxygen what i was thinking know. i who am fed with the blood yeah, of both yeah, i who am exactly. sustained yeah. by the blood of both right, but no right, poisoned right, right. Yeah, both both poison. of them are poison yeah yeah um where shall i turn divided to the vein yeah so and of course um you know turn we think i can't help but think uh, mm-hmm. uh having been trained at yale as you were uh in in the ways in which poems uh, often reflect mm-hmm. on themselves um, you know that verse uh, involves turning uh, a turning and this poem turns and turns uh you know from from one perspective to another one sympathy to another one kind of compassion or revulsion to another where shall i turn divided to the vein uh is both a, a kind of meta reflection in some ways on what he's doing in this poem itself and the question yeah so i i was thinking the same thing yeah mm-hmm. so but where mm-hmm. shall i you know, ordinarily, I guess when one asks, like, wh- where shall I turn? The, you know, what you're expressing is, you know, you're you're in some kind of predicament, and <clears throat> what you would like to be able to do is to turn towards safety or comfort or rescue of some right. some kind. But here, it's as though both sides of the the bridge are burning or something. Exactly. Like yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so then we get to that that line which yeah it's is really conspicuous in just sort of looking at the poem on the page you mm-hmm. see how how much shorter it is it's you know if we've been saying it's pentameter mm-hmm. mostly to this point this is what dimeter or mm-hmm. maybe trimeter mm-hmm. i don't know mm-hmm. um i who have cursed um and then the the enjamin is the drunken officer of british rules this brings me to a, a question that's been sort of lingering throughout our conversation um Jahan said take take it for for what you will or 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 do whatever you'd like with those lines that I've just been pointing to mm-hmm. it it's not just that um Walcott is um sort of uh part of the African diaspora and mm-hmm. thinking about what's happening in Kenya and, at at the time you know with the British colonial rule and the and the Mau Mau uprising he's not just a member of the diaspora. He's also a colonial, a British colonial subject himself. Right. Exactly. Um, You know, I'm trying to think in other words, like how would the poem be different if it were say uh, an American poet, you know, a a different kind of situatedness. um, If an African American poet were, were writing a similar kind of poem at that, at that time. Um, So, that awareness i guess comes to a head in Mm -hmm. in those lines right that he too Mm -hmm. has felt a kind of exactly um rebelliousness to british rule yeah yeah no very very much so that's that's well put you feel in this moment almost that this comes out of personal experience you know I've seen these drunken uh, officers of British rule. You know, I've I've had to encounter them. Uh, you know, um, yeah, and and so there is this very strong sense, not only of ancestral and racial 
connection, but also experiential one of belonging to a culture that is still under British colonial domination um, and is in that line anyway, using that English language to curse it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Is there, is there some, I mean, I, I confess, I don't know very much about the nature of the British colonial rule Mm -hmm. in St. Lucia Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the, in the, 20th century Mm -hmm. Mm um is there some sort of misgiving or feeling of um i mean is is do you is walcott worried about being too good a subject (laughs) you know like should is is part of the word here like should we be rebelling interesting interesting yeah um you know i think Probably that worry would have been even more intense living in Jamaica, where yeah, right, you have right. had rebellion, a history of uprisings and rebellions yeah. that have been crushed brutally by the British. Um, and there, I think, yes, there there would be a, a kind of anxiety about wanting to um, show. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also very much felt throughout his work a sense of um, you know the the weight of, of British um, you know uh, 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 oppression, and um, you know so so I I, I think um, there is this kind of inter you're you're pointing us to a really fascinating kind of interregional you know mm. s- global south global south connectedness here that traverses those distances obviously nothing the distance of the middle passage of the middle passage exactly yeah exactly yeah so that, Sorry, yeah, that's yeah. great. No, no, no. That's great. Um, so I, I, but, but I, and I think that that sense of, of affinity deepens as he goes on and it, the, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. more and more. Um, and I can't help but notice at the end of the, that very line, you know, how to choose, you were asking about enjambments yeah. uh, earlier that choose is suspended there at the, yeah. at the very end of the line. How choose between this Africa. The, the, this is interesting to me. It is interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, this, yeah. The, the, this, this Africa that, um, that, uh, perhaps is an Africa that is heroically fighting for liberation. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I think we're we're also given reason to think this Africa that has done the committed atrocities, committed Mm -hmm. acts of violence um, that are abhorrent. Um, I think both of those are rolled up in that this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And the English tongue I love. Yeah. Tongue, um, you know, kind of familiar metonym for mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the language mm-hmm. I love, but it but it somehow makes it feel all the more sort of personal and um, like one couldn't give it up. You know, yeah. one could give exactly. up a language, but not one's tongue. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, unless That's you right. were, you know, That's in some right. Greek myth or something. Right? That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you're you're reminding me of. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, the the end of the wasteland, uh, in oh, which yeah. there's a reference to a, a, a Elizabethan char- you know play in which a character bites out his tongue and spits yeah. it at his tor- yeah. torturers. Um, but right. yeah, this is this is 
uh, I think you're absolutely right. Not, not only would that meet be to dismember yourself mm-hmm. um, to to give that tongue up, it would also mean the end of this poem. You know, to silence yourself, fall yeah. into silent to silence. Yeah. yeah, betray them both or give back what they give. Because I, I suppose they both give. I mean, in, in addition to whatever poisoning has mm-hmm. happened here, mm-hmm. they've. Mm-hmm. He he feels enriched by both. Yes, I think that's right. And and betray is such an interesting mm-hmm. word. The the worry about you know how can I be true to both of my cultural inheritances mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, to affiliate myself with the English tongue and the English literary inheritances and all of that is that to betray. Uh, you know, my, um, you know, African brethren, you know, as, as it were, uh, the other colonial subjects, um, and vice versa, you know, and, and he even tries to imagine betraying both of the, both right. sides, um, giving up his language, giving up his sense of affinity um, with mm-hmm. Africa. Um, and obviously that's a very dangerous place because, you know, what would he be without yeah. um, either or both of those? Yeah. Um, er- earlier, um, Jahan, you, you, you had, um, in talking about the, the questions that that end the first stanza mm-hmm. of the poem, you had said that they sort of um, are, a, they come kind of come from opposite directions or there there's a kind of oppositional um, orientation between them. The, the, the poem as a whole of the, the third stanza ends with a series of four questions, each a line. Um, well, I mean, I guess the first of those four is longer than a line, but um uh, how choose between this Africa and the English tongue I love, b- betray them both or give back what they give. And then these two questions mm-hmm. end the poem. Mm-hmm. How can I face such slaughter and be cool? How can I turn from Africa and live? Um, I have, I have a, I guess, a few questions about those, but l- let's see if they, I think they're all kind of um, intertwined with each other. I mean, one question is just like, the word cool seems really interesting to me here and, and is a bit of a surprise to me every time I read the poem. Uh, I wonder what the, you know, what it, it's a famously kind of ambiguous word, polysemic kind of thing. You know, you think of everything from Miles Davis to, I don't know, whatever else, you know, what, it, what, it, so what's the status, like what kind of coolness does he have in mind here? Um, and then, and, the, the word live, I think, is interesting, too. But I guess the the sort of apart from the particular questions about word choice in those terminal positions of the lines, my question sort of harking back to the the way the first stanza ended is, are these questions, do you read them as similarly sort of opposed to each other or in tension with each other? Or is this poet sort of coming to some kind of, res- it's like, is he getting off the fence by the end of the poem? Yeah. It, there's certainly not a kind of neat symmetrical opposition here at the end, and the the oppositions, you know, this or that, sometimes are occur, occurring within the single line, or how to choose between this Africa and the English tongue. So there are oppositions 
you know, within mm-hmm. these final lines. I mean, to my mind, it feels like, you know, the, the, the rhetorical questions are, I don't know how to put this exactly, but, but there, there's a kind of torque They're They're twisting ever more tightly at the end. Um, you know, finally we, we have this, expression of just exasperation with the slaughter with the, the you know all the death and and dying that's going on mm. now um you know through the killings on either side you know how can i face it and i think be cool um yeah um to my mind is you know how, how can i um, hold my composure how can mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. continue to be a, a you know a cerebral rational um uh person in, in some way uh and just you know a pentameter calm, producing pentameter poet. producing yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly and i think actually these the a lot of these last final lines really are very much in 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 pentameter um and interestingly enough he's he's yeah. going toward a more regular meter here um and uh and then yeah how can i turn and we get that that turn and the final turn at the end right. how can i turn from africa and live um you know we, i i i should defer to you here uh, is <laughs> is there something you want to burning to say about the this final line well i mean you know, um, I I guess what would it if the idea is, and and I'm just thinking out loud now. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But if the idea is that turning from Africa and presumably more sort of securely um, attaching his allegiance to his to his English language and his British um, identity, um, if if that would make it impossible to live exactly then um you know what i guess what i'm curious about is sort of what what's the view of living that sort yeah. of upon which that thought is premised like what does yeah. it mean to live yeah, yeah. To, to live yeah. does one need to 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 sort of um i mean is this a is this some kind of claim about i i wouldn't be living if i were denying um, exactly. my Africanness. Yeah, right? exactly. It would be, it would be great. a kind of white death or something. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Well said. Well yeah. said. I, yeah. I, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's interesting to think about this in juxtaposition with giving up the English tongue, right. That, yeah. uh, that he yeah. says, I love. Yeah. So we were saying that that would be awful. It would make him mute. It would be as kind of uh, bodily, yeah. uh, almost physically felt, uh, kind of mm-hmm. act of self-suppression, but but it's interesting that in this climactic line, it almost comes as something of a surprise, mm-hmm. having having uh, said you know made clear the stakes of the, having expressed this love for the English tongue, that really finally it's Africa that gets the final yeah. you know statement of allegiance um that it wouldn't be just to fall mute to give up africa it would be to give up your his existence completely yeah. you know yeah. he could not uh, i i guess it would be to 
um, you know, because because he recognizes that fundamentally he comes out of an Africanized New World culture. Um, he 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 has been, you know, he uh, that that um, to to give that up, to give up the sense of connection with Africa, would be. Um, a mm. self annihilation in a way. Um, you know, you could see this poem in some ways as a very, um, as a 1950s kind of rewrite of the kind of tragic mulatto sort of poem mm-hmm. that was, you know, in the 19th century quite popular. And we get some of it in uh, Harlem Renaissance poets like, um, you know, uh, Langston Hughes, for for example. Say more um, about what that what what's designated by that term for people so who aren't just, familiar with just, it. Yeah. You know, the 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 sense of being torn between one's whiteness and blackness as a so-called mm-hmm. mulatto. Um, and here there is a obviously he's talking uh, in part here uh, about um, about a racial inheritance, a blood inheritance. Um, that is, uh, you know, kind of tragically pulling him in opposite directions. And there's no sense of a neat resolution of it at the Mm. end. He leaves us with these questions. So again, I think that's a departure from the new critical, you know, Mm -hmm. neat tensions and Mm -hmm. resolutions, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's almost a kind of explosive sense of... uh, um, of the relationships among these different um, allegiances and and opposing senses of revulsion, you know, yeah. um, so um, that that we come to at the end, and I think that's part of the reason that it that it ends with all these the the twists on twist on twist on twist of these questions at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's 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 um, the. All of the tensions um, we've been describing all along, we we might remember, are in some sense inaugurated by the title of the poem, which has uh-huh. its own kind of tension in it. And and we shouldn't think this is the kind of poem that seeks to resolve or thinks it can right. resolve that right. tension. Right. Um, and yet, it, and yet, yeah. it, I think it is wonderful uh, that that and i don't think this is just a new critical thing that poetry can be a space uh in which those tensions those ambivalences those conflicted feelings i mean i think of someone like um you know a, a precursor poem to this would be something like yeats's easter 1916 which is again a witnessing of an yeah. anti-colonial revolt in which the poet gives utterance to both his sense of maybe this was a waste you know right. maybe the english would have come you know why and yet also that there's something powerful going on here yeah that i mean he's I, witnessing I, you know yeats much better than i do but yeah. at, the, at the end of that poem he's really sort of um memorial sort of he's kind trying of memorializing to memorialize and, and yeah. sort of yeah sees yeah. that resistance as heroic in he some does. sense and, he and, does. and yeah he tries to bring it to a close although yeah you know i don't think completely whereas here there the the ends are much more frayed and, and yeah loose. yeah yeah those words i guess um neither of them cool nor well live rhymes with give yeah, in yeah. the in the in the previous line cool doesn't rhyme with doesn't no. get a rhyme yeah interesting um <laughs> 
Yeah. How can I turn from Africa and live? Hmm. Well, um, Jahan Ramasani, what a, what a wonderful, um, hour and a half this has been and, and a beautiful conversation this has been. I know that, um, I, I, I hear sometimes from listeners that they, they very much want to hear the poem a second time, having heard the discussion of it. And I wonder if I could ask you to be so kind as to read a far cry from Africa for us as a way to send us out. I would be delighted. And thank you for your wonderful questions and companionship. Um, it's been delightful to talk with you about um, uh, this, this incredibly uh, powerful poem. Thank you, Kamran. You're very welcome. A Far Cry from Africa. A wind is ruffling the tawny pelt of Africa. Kikuyu, quick as flies, batten upon the bloodstreams of the veldt. Corpses are scattered through a paradise. Only the worm kernel of carrion cries, Waste no compassion on these separate dead. Statistics justify and scholars seize the salience of colonial policy. What is that to the white child hacked in bed? To savages expendable as Jews? Threshed out by beaters, the long rushes break in a white dust of ibises whose cries have wheeled since civilization's dawn from the parched river or beast-teeming plain. The violence of beast on beast is read as natural law, but upright man seeks his divinity by inflicting pain. Delirious as these worried beasts, his wars dance to the tightened carcass of a drum while he calls courage still that native dread of the white peace contracted by the dead. Again, brutish necessity wipes its hands upon the napkins of a dirty cause. Again, a waste of our compassion, as with Spain, the gorilla wrestles with the Superman. I who am poisoned with the blood of both, where shall I turn, divided to the vein? I, who have cursed the drunken officer of British rule, how choose between this Africa and the English tongue I love? Betray them both or give back what they give? How can I face such slaughter and be cool? How can I turn from Africa and live? Well, Jahan Ramazani, thank you again so much. Yeah, no, it's 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 been a real it's been a real pleasure for me, a real treat for me. Jahan, your your name I've got it right, haven't I? It means world. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) the the Persian world, the Persian word for for world, and Mm. and I think you know we see that um, that you're sort of living up to that name. (laughs) I try to not let it go to my head. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's been a it's been a pleasure and an education to to talk with you, and um, I'm sure our listeners will feel um, buoyed by it as well. 
Um, so th- thank you again. And thank you, um, listeners for hanging out with us for the last hour and a half or so. Um, please, uh, share the episode with a friend if, if you've found it stimulating and stay tuned. We'll have more for you soon. Be well, everyone.